So the last thing that we were looking at with Israel was John Hyrcanus II had been made king, but his brother Aristobulus II didn't like that. So Aristobulus II rebelled against him and took the throne and pushed John Hyrcanus out. At that point, John Hyrcanus II sought Antipater I. Antipater was an Edomian, and Antipater took him to Pompey, and then Pompey helped them and pushed Aristobulus II out and put Antipater as the king over Israel and John Hyrcanus II as high priest. When Pompey was pushed out by Julius Caesar, then Julius Caesar reaffirmed that decision by putting him into power. So that's where we left off in Israel. So with the arrival of the Roman forces in Syria and in the Promised Land, Antipater realized that any hope of truly independent Judea was lost. So he realizes that the best thing that he can do is just work with Rome and try to maintain power with cooperation with Rome. Antipater, he appoints two of his sons to be tetrarchs. And these two sons are Herod I in Galilee and Phasiel in Jerusalem. So this is the Herodians. This is the beginning of the Herodians. Antipater I is a Herodian. And his two sons, Herod I and Phasiel, are going to become governors or tetrarchs. Herod I is the Herod of Jesus' birth. So he's the Herod that killed the babies in Bethlehem and try to kill Jesus in the process of it. So this is putting us about one generation away from Jesus' birth now. So Herod I becomes tetrarch over the Galilee. Now the Galilee is the northern part of Israel, around the Sea of Galilee. It's the part between the Mediterranean Sea and the Sea of Galilee and the region around there. He begins to rule over that. Where Phasiel becomes the governor of Jerusalem, and the surrounding territory around there that we know as Judea. So the country is basically split between these two. And then, of course, Antipater becomes the senior ruler over both of them. So they're sub-rulers under his authority, and he's submissive to the Roman Empire, or Octavian, the Roman emperor, as they rule over this. So now Israel is thoroughly under the control of non-Israelites, politically speaking, and they are never really going to gain this back. The Herods are going to rule all throughout this time, through the time of Christ, and all through the book of Acts, until they're ultimately kicked out of Israel in 135 AD by the Roman soldiers. So this is the beginning of the Herodian rule. Now Herod I was energetic. He was impulsive, and he was ruthless. And many times during this re time period, he reacted with great violence. Now, Herod was an incredible politician. He knew politics well, and he knew how to run a very efficient, smooth country. And in that sense, he was an incredible politician, an incredible ruler for Israel, because he knew how to maintain and work everybody in order to maintain what Rome wanted, and that was the Pax Ramona, the peace. But at the same time, he was also very ruthless, very violent. And he had no problem following the norm of the Roman Empire of when peace is threatened, then smash them as violently, as quickly, and as hard as you possibly can. And once you do that, then it will prevent, hopefully, people forever having the courage of doing this again. And that is what he was willing to do. 
So in some ways, politically and economically, he was good for the country, but we all know that that's not all that matters. Good character and being good to the people is far more important than economic stability and all that kind of stuff. So, but when it came to the Jewish people, they did not like him. They did not like him at all because of his ruthlessness. Now the Sanhedrin began to kind of oppose him. During this time period, the Pharisees largely controlled the Sanhedrin, and they do not like Herod at all. And they saw him as reckless and a dictator that could get out of control. This brings us to Antigonus. Antigonus is the son of Aristobulus II. His father was executed, and everybody else, all of his uncles were in prison, and now he's a surviving son, and he wants vengeance against Rome, against John Hyrcanus and Antipater. Now, he can't touch Rome in any kind of way. They're way too big. But he can go after John Hyrcanus II, his uncle, and Antipater, the, the imposter king, as he would view him. So he's going to go get revenge on him. He makes an alliance with the Parth Parthians. Now, the Parthians are the new empire on the scene. <clears throat> now that Rome has put down the Macedonians, put down the Ptolemies and the Seleucids, and taken control of the eastern part of the Mediterranean, and they've put down Carthage in North Africa and taken control over the western part of the Mediterranean, at the same time, over in what used to be Persia going into China, and what we know today as modern-day Russia, is the Parthians. Now, the Parthians have been around as a kingdom for hundreds upon hundreds of years, but they're now rising up into a, a giant empire, an empire that's almost as big as the Persian Empire when it comes from the Mediterranean going towards the Indus River. And you can see that on the maps on my website. And the Parthian Empire is going to be a threat to the Roman Empire all throughout the Roman Empire's life. Um, this is a major empire that they're going to keep fighting and fighting and fighting and not really going to have a lot of success in destroying or pushing back the Parthian, Parthian Empire. So the Parthian Empire is willing to make an alliance with Antigonus because they don't like the Roman Empire and they want to push the Roman Empire out of Syria or Israel. Now, obviously, Antigonus hasn't learned the mistake that his uncle um, made John Arcanus II by allying themselves with the foreign empire because you just ultimately lose your own power. But he makes this alliance, and in 40 BC, he leads a coup against Antipater I. And he gains support of many Israelites. He has the army of the Parthians backing him, and the Romans have kind of gotten relaxed in this area, and he leads a coup. And what he does is he poisons Antipater, and he poisons him and kills him so he's no longer king. He poisoned Phasiel as well. And Herod the first escaped with his life. And then he takes the throne and he captures John Hyrcanus II. John Hyrcanus II is his uncle. And he does think like, well, he is family after all, so I'm not going to kill him. But at the same time, he doesn't really have any respect for John Hyrcanus II. He wants him completely removed so that he can't threaten the power. So what he ends up doing is he cuts off John Hyrcanus II's ears. By cutting his ears off, this is going to thoroughly mutilate him. It's going to impair his ability to function, which is not going to make him a respected king. But the other thing is this disqualifies him from the priesthood. The Levitical law in Exodus 
And the Mosaic Law required that the priests be without defect. They weren't allowed to have any kind of physical defect if they were going to serve as a priest in a tabernacle. Now, God is not anti-people with physical defect, but the idea is that serving in the tabernacle was all about being whole and being holy. And so that implied that you couldn't be without physical defect. Or you had to be without physical defect in order to serve because the whole image was wholeness. Because sin is what causes us not to be whole. So since wholeness, a lack of wholeness is a result of sin, then God cannot have a lack of wholeness in the tabernacle. And remember, this doesn't mean you can't be saved. This doesn't mean that you can't have a relationship with God. It's a ritualistic, symbolic thing that God created to help people understand what righteousness truly means to the best you can in a physical fallen world. This disqualifies him from being a priesthood. And this is found in Leviticus 21, the rules for that. And then he exiled him to Babylon. He then proclaimed himself king and high priest simultaneously. So once again, we have a Hasmonean who is taking the office of high priest and king simultaneously, which is a violation of the law, the Mosaic law. Then he shifts the power of the Sanhedrin from the Pharisees to the Sadducees. The Sadducees had backed his father, Aristobulus II, and had backed him coming into power. And so he drives the Pharisees out of the Sanhedrin, basically, or at least reduces their influence. We're not completely sure how much they're completely driven out. And the Sadducees take power. And they're pretty much going to maintain this power from this point on. Even when the Herods come back into power and drive Antigonus out, the Herods are pretty much just the Herodians. Um, when the Herodians come back and drive Antigonus out, the Herodians are going to keep the Sadducees in power because the Herodians are willing to make compromises and their beliefs in order to have power with Rome. And the Sadducees are as well. So this makes them more of an alliance together than with the Pharisees who are not willing to make as many compromises. So from this point on, the Sadducees are pretty much going to be the dominant power in the Sanhedrin. And that's who we see controlling the Sanhedrin when Jesus comes on the scene, and especially during his trial and crucifixion. It is the, San, it is the Sadducees with Caiaphas and Annas who are pretty much leading that whole trial and the corruption there and all that kind of stuff. So they would maintain this power until 135 AD when they are driven completely out of the land. Herod I, now that his brother was dead, he fled all the way back to Rome. And he took this to Rome because he knew that Antigonus, with the support of the Parthians, is a threat to the Romans' empire's control and hold over Israel. And so he fled to Rome in order to stake his claim to the throne. He went and met up with the Roman Senate. And he basically argues his case, why he's the good one that will represent the Roman interests. Rome has already sees him and respects him greatly for this. And he goes back with a legion of Roman soldiers in order to put down the rebellion of Antigonus I. So Antigonus' rebellion in the kingship is not going to last long. They knew, Rome knew that Herod I would maintain order. They knew he was ruthless enough in order to maintain order, but he also wasn't a psychopath that would get carried away and just needlessly kill people for no reason. In Rome's eyes, and my eyes, he did kill people needlessly. And that most importantly, he would maintain the Roman tax. And that's what they're interested. So they supported him back, 
And in 39 BC, he returned to Israel with a legion of soldiers from the Roman Empire. He became what's known as a client king, where he has full power as king over Israel to rule in every kind of a way except for when it comes to the taxes and raising armies. He, the taxes always go to Rome first before they go to you, and you're not allowed to raise an army or deploy them in any kind of way without Rome's permission. Now, there were a few other minor things that Rome had to approve of, but other than that, Herod was a pretty full-blown, powerful king over Israel as a client king. Rome obviously reserved the right to step in at any time and remove him for any reason. When he gets back to Rome, a civil war ensues for about two years. So Antigonus with the Sadducees end up in the Parthians fight against Herod I and the Roman soldiers. And this civil war ensues until and eventually Antigonus is captured in 37 BC and Herod becomes victorious. The Romans as well as Herod were furious that there was so much Jewish resistance. They thought that they could just come in and put it down and have it over with. But instead, this thing dragged out for two years. And this made the Roman soldiers, the Roman Empire, furious, as well as Herod I, as a result of this. The Jews who supported Herod, when they came into Jerusalem and finally took Jerusalem and gained control of it, the Roman soldiers... The Jews that supported Herod and Herod I went in and began to slaughter hundreds of people in Jerusalem. The blood was flowing down the street, according to the text that we read. Bodies were piled up on street corners. And every place that you went in the city, people were being slaughtered and destroyed because they were so angry that this civil war took two years to put them down. And so this shows you the ruthlessness of Herod I as well as those under his power. Old people, young people, women, children, everybody was slaughtered that was found in the street in any kind of a way. Mark Antony, who ends up supporting him towards the end of this civil war, now that Julius Caesar is dead, is basically goes down and helps him win the final victory, but has to go back to Rome and ends up leading a legion behind. And he leaves a very sizable Roman legion behind because of the two-year resistance that was a result. So Herod I officially becomes king in 37 BC. This is about 30 years before Jesus comes on the scene. He married Miriam I, who was the granddaughter of John Hyrcanus II and the niece of Antigonus in order to secure his claim. So the fact that she's related to both John Hyrcanus II, who's trying to take the throne, and Antigonus I, who had taken the throne, these two sides are disputing each other in Israel. He's related to both of them now through the marriage of Miriam. This seals his security to the throne. Now he can say he is legitimately a Hasmonean and has the right to the throne. He, can ha he has a Jew in his family that he's married to, saying that he is a Jew, and he can also say he has Roman support, and no one can question that. As a result, he banished his wife and son that he already had. Now, this also says what kind of a man he is. Herod also began to obey a lot of the Mosaic law. Now, obviously not the moral code, but he obeyed the rituals 
and the kosher laws of clean and unclean food and making sacrifices and he attended the festivals. He did everything in his power to look Jewish when it came to rituals, festivals, and the unclean and unclean and clean food rituals in order to present himself to the Jewish people. Hey, look at me. I'm one of you. And so he did that. He was very determined that nobody else outside of Jewish ethnicity had ever done that and ever will do that like Herod I did. Herod I then brought from Babylon the priest Ananias, also known as Hamiel, and installed him as high priest. So there was a Babylonian Jewish man. So this was a man that was from the priestly line in Israel, and his bloodline is Levitical, his bloodline is Jewish, but he had never returned from exile back to the promised land. He was one of the very many people who never returned. And so there was he brought him in. So now the priesthood is at least Jewish, but it's a Jewish man who hasn't ever been in Judah. And it's been multiple generations since any of his family members have been in Judah. So he is completely disconnected from the culture of being Jewish in a lot of ways and probably has made a lot of compromises himself with the Babylonian culture. And that's probably why Herod put him into power. Now, Mark Antony had tried to persuade Herod to install Aristobulus II instead, which would overjoy the Jewish people. Like, hey, you can get the Jewish people to like you if you put Aristobulus II as priest. However, Herod I had drowned him at a swimming party in Jericho. Herod I also sacked each high priest after only one year. So normally a high priest would be priest until they die. But Herod began to sack the high priest after a year. Then he would appoint a new high priest. And at the end of the year, he would sack another one. And what this did, it ensured that they never were there long enough to seal their power and to become very powerful. And if they could seal their power and become powerful and influential year after year after year, this would present a threat to his own power. So by dethroning them, so to speak, every single year, he keeps the office very unstable. Therefore, they can't accumulate any kind of a power and they can't threaten him in any kind of way. But this also greatly disrupts the religious worship services of the tabernacle because you don't know if he's going to be Jewish or Levitical um, year after year after year. You don't have the same consistent person. I mean, think about how much this would disrupt your church if you got a new pastor every single year, let alone a priest who's over the entire nation who's responsible for the atonement of sins. So this is really going to disrupt Israel in a lot of ways. And you as an everyday normal person, think about it. You're living in Israel and all your leaders keep getting assassinated. You keep going to civil wars. There's no political stability whatsoever. Now, that's going to change a lot with the Herodians. They're going to bring political stability. But at the same time, your priesthood, your religious leaders are also constantly being sacked all the time. And if you keep changing leaders after leader after leader, largely through being assassinated or having civil wars, this is going to bring a lot of unrest to your nation. And we've seen what things can do when there's no stability, how it can bring unrest to our own nation. And we don't have leaders being constantly dethroned in violent ways all the time. So if we had that in addition, our country would just be very miserable, very stressed, and there would be very little hope in any kind of a way. And this is what the leaders have brought. They haven't brought peace or stability in any kind of way or deliverance. They've actually brought instability and chaos to the nation. After Octavian's defeat of Mark Antony 
and 31 BC, Herod I was afraid that Octavian would oppose him and dethrone him because he had joined Mark Antony and he had backed Mark Antony and Mark Antony had put him into power and Octavian might see that as a threat since Octavian and Mark Antony were in a civil war. Mark Antony at that time was good friends with Octavian when Herod first joined him. So he's going to go to Octavian and say, look, 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 I am always first and foremost a supporter and will represent the interest of Rome. I was with Mark Antony, not because I was anti-you or opposed you or Rome in any kind of way. I was with Mark Antony because he was Rome and you guys were allied together in the beginning. And so it's always Rome, regardless of who the ruler is. Now, Octavian was very impressed with Herod I. He was impressed with his intelligence, his political um, abilities and intelligence. He was impressed with his strategies as a military leader, the way that he ran Israel. He kept the peace, his, his, his balance, according to Octavian, his balance of ruthlessness, as well as trying to not upret, uns, upset things for just the sake of upsetting things. And Octavian backed him up. And he put him in power. Now, obviously, Octavian is going to stay in power for 30-something years. So this is going to be good for Herod. In fact, they end up becoming very good friends. It's good friends as psychopaths can possibly be living in different countries. But they end up becoming friends. And they actually became pen pals and wrote to each other a lot of, in a lot of ways. So I have no idea what that relationship really was like in real life. Um, but there were multiple letters sent back and forth between them. So at this point, things are finally going to start becoming stable. Octavian being the emperor for a long time, bringing the Pax Ramona, and Herod I becoming to be king for a while, and then his sons are going to succeed him and still be pretty peaceful. And then other than the priesthood being rotated every single year, things are about ready to calm down. Now that doesn't mean things are good, and it doesn't mean that things are peaceful, but the total chaos of civil war and assassinations and wars that's at least going to settle down and things are going to work out more smoothly for the people of Israel. Octavian calls him ally and friend and restores his clienthood and gives him unlimited power and control over Israel because Octavian pretty much trusts him to do anything except for interacting with foreign nations and the tax. As long as the tax doesn't get threat threatened as long as he doesn't make foreign nation decisions octavian pretty much gave herod the first a long leash with pretty much unlimited power the jewish people as i was already mentioned didn't like him so herod the first at this point now realizes that his power is pretty secure he's got a pretty good sense of the roman empire things look like that's becoming stable octavian's going to be there for a long time he's really good with friends with octavian that means his power is going to be pretty secure. Things are going to begin to settle down. And so now he begins to focus all of his attention on trying to win the approval of the Jewish people. Now, he's not looking to win the approval of the Jewish people because, hey, I'm really lonely and I don't think that you like me and I don't like not being liked by you. And that really affects my emotions. He's trying to win the approval of the Jewish people because if they approve of him, then they'll rebel and rock the boat less, which means he can do whatever he wants. If they don't like him, they'll rock the boat and rebel, and then he has to deal with them rather than eating and drinking and entertaining himself like he would really like to do. So he tries to win their approval. 
One of the things he begins to do is, I already mentioned this, he obeys all the ceremonial laws and observances and the Mosaic law. He also rebuilds up the temple. When we last looked at Israel, the temple had been rebuilt in 515 BC under the leadership of Zerubbabel. And if you go back to the Ezra Nehemiah notes, you can see a picture of that temple. What he's doing is he's going to build the temple up even bigger and more phenomenal in a lot of sense. And he's going to take this teeny little temple and build a giant temple mound around it. And you can go on the internet and look up pictures of Herod's temple. And you'll see that it's absolutely phenomenal in its size. And, and in, in the, t- the temple today, the temple no longer exists there. But the Temple Mount, the foundation that he built around the temple, still exists to this day in Israel. He thought that if he made the temple really big, that this would really win the allegiance and the approval of the Jews who valued the temple more than anything. And it's actually going to be considered one of the ancient wonders of the world, not like ancient, ancient wonders. You have to realize that the ancient wonders of the world constantly changes throughout the years of ancient history. But at that time period, it's going to become one of the the wonders of the ancient world as a result of that. And so the other things he does is he builds up a harbor in Caesarea Philippi. And Caesarea Philippi is a coast, um, a port city on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. It's a harbor. And he basically, it just is a, you can look this up on the internet too, Caesarea Philippi, Herod's Harbor in Caesarea Philippi. And a lot of the remains are still there. And basically, he took a bunch of dirt and he built like a harbor, a sea coming off of the coast so that it would protect the coast and the port from the ocean waves and the violent storms. And then he built a giant amphitheater there and he built um, all these other things and actually a racetrack as well. And he built it up as a very phenomenal city like a Las, La- Las Vegas of the ancient world where there's entertainment and amphitheaters and, and racetracks and all this kind of stuff. And he built it up and it brought lots of money into Israel because this port becomes so big and this harbor becomes so protected. And then he makes it into a the, the as, as Roman as you can possibly get. And the size and the grandeur of the amphitheater and the racetrack and the the size of the entertainment and the theater and the games and all that kind of stuff. And it becomes such a big attraction. And, And being a port that brings a lot of people from a lot of different places, it brought a lot of money into Israel. And it increased the economy big time. And this was very good for Israel in an economic sense. And so he did this for Israel. He also built many, many, many other things. Um, he also built a city by the name of Sipporah. Sipporah was a city close to the Sea of Galilee. And he started building it up. And he wanted to be this as Roman as it possibly could be. And what's interesting is that Sipporah is actually, you can walk to it fairly easily from Nazareth. And many scholars believe that Joseph and Jesus would have been employed in Sipporah um, in order to build the buildings there. And the Bible were told that Jesus was a carpenter, but he actually was not a carpenter. Not that he did not know how to work with wood, but very few things were actually built out of wood. 
in the ancient world. Most things were built out of stone. If you go to the archaeological digs there, all the buildings are stone. Some of them are rocks from lava, basalt, um, lava rocks from volcanoes. And the only thing that was really made out of wood was like your wood beams on your roof and then some furniture. But even then, they didn't really make tables and chairs. Like the Passion of the Christ movie, which is a great, phenomenal movie to understand crucifixion. But in the very beginning scenes, Jesus is making a chair and a table, and it looks like a European-American table and chair. But most people in the ancient world sat on the floor and because they were from the eastern part of the world. And even today, many people over there still sit on the floor and rugs and pillows and that kind of stuff. So there really wasn't a lot of... Um, furniture making or carpentry that actually happened and that Hebrew word that is often translated carpenter actually doesn't really mean that it just means a workman or a craftsman and most likely he was a worker of stone and so many scholars believe that him and his father walked his support day after day because it would have been right at the beginning of its building stages when Jesus was growing up all the way until his ministry began it was a long long many many years of building and he also built up fortresses. He was so paranoid that people were trying to kill him, because they were, that he built a lot of fortresses throughout Israel that he fully stocked with food and supplies and water that would last for years, that if he ever had to flee there in protection, he could pretty much barricade himself there and stay there. And these are Masada and the Herodium. Um, and you can see these as you look these up in archaeological things. The good thing about the internet today is when I was growing up and first learning this in college and in seminary, you had to like go to like the library and only a university library because Columbus Library doesn't have this and find a book with pictures of this stuff. Or you had to like find some archaeologist that was visiting your school and to get pictures of this stuff. But now, with the internet, we all know, is so filled with so many things that you can see these things very quickly um, by just looking them up. So you'll get an idea of his building projects. At the same time, he also built many pagan cities. He built many Gentile cities in the, sea, the region of Galilee. The eastern side of the Galilee was largely controlled by mostly Gentiles. And they were doing sacrifice to pagan gods there. And he built up these things as well. So it wasn't just Jews that he was trying to earn the favor of. He was building it up for everybody. But because of that, the Jews still didn't like him. They saw through this. They knew that he was just doing this to get them to like him. And then they also sometimes thought that the temple was too gaudy in some ways. They didn't like the fact that he was also supporting the pagans. And so they saw through all this. And it didn't change their opinion of him in any kind of a way even though it did bring great economic stability and wealth to the Jew Israel. One of the things he did is that he took the Roman eagle and he brought it in. The Romans had an eagle as a symbol of their empire, very similar to um, what the, Roman, the, the Germans use as an eagle. And he brought it in and put it on the temple. And this didn't go over well with the Jews because you're not allowed to have any graven images, period, let alone put the graven image right on the temple. Now, why he did this, I have no idea. When you're trying to win the approval of Israel and you're trying to be kosher, you know what kosher is because you're trying to be that. Why he did that, I have no idea. And so this violates the Mosaic Law and they rebelled against him and then he eventually took them down. But this is just one of those things that show that he didn't really care about them and the Mosaic Law in any kind of way. He also dealt very harshly with them. We already talked about this. Um, but, for example, there was a group of youths 
young men who were incited by their teachers to pull down the Roman eagle. So when the Roman eagle was first put up, a whole bunch of young students, their teachers convinced them to go out and actually rip the eagle down off the face of the temple and tear it down. Herod did not like this. So he burned them all. He burned them all alive in order to punish them for this. But he ended up keeping the eagle down as a result of that. But it just shows you what a psychopath that he is. That he's just burning these people down because they tore down the eagle vision. He also was very paranoid about people trying to take his throne, trying to assassinate him, become king, and even of his own sons. He was very paranoid that his sons were against him and that they were going to try to kill him and take the throne because before his death. And some of them probably did. He, I mean, you can tell that this guy probably was not a good father, or he definitely was not a good father. He actually assassinated some of his sons as well. He eventually killed his wife and three of his sons because he just thought they were trying to take power from him. <clears throat> now, whether they really were or not, we don't know. But that's really messed up when you're like, oh, I think that you might actually try to take power from me, and then you kill your wife, and you kill three of your sons, and all that kind of stuff. So, obviously, this is a violation of the Mosaic Law, and the Jews didn't like him for this. When Caesar Augustus heard about Herod killing his own children, because they were trying to take the throne, or he thought that they were trying to take the throne... Caesar Augustus said it is better to be Herod's pig than his sons because Herod was willing to kill his own sons but because he was trying to live a kosher life he was unwilling to eat unclean animals and a pig is considered unclean according to the kosher laws and so he said it's way better to be his pig than it is to be his sons because Herod won't kill his pigs so this shows you the kind of moral man that he was Herod I ended up dying in 4 BC. Herod I divided his kingdom among his three younger sons, who were Philip. He gave him Ituria and Trachonanus. These are the northern parts of the Sea of Galilee, the northeastern part of the Sea of Galilee. So the other side of the Jordan River, the other side of the Sea of Galilee, he gave him that northern part to rule over. Philip will end up being a pretty decent ruler. He won't be as ruthless and as cruel as his father, but he will be very economically wise and stable. And he actually treats the Jews really well. There's never really any record of him antagonizing the Jews or being ruthless with them or violently putting them down in any kind of way. And the Jews that lived in that area liked him. Now, granted, he's ruling over a Jewish cities as well as Gentile cities, but everybody ended up liking him. So he's close as you're going to get to a pretty decent ruler who is not moral or Christian or Jewish in any kind of a way. So he has a pretty peaceful reign from 4 BC to 34 AD for pretty much his entire life. His other son, Herod Archelaus, will take Judea and Samaria and Edomia. Archelaus is going to rule in what we mostly see in the southern parts and so Edomia is all the way south. That's where the Edomites are. And then Samaria, Judah, which is where Jerusalem is, and most of the action has been happening since the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. And then Samaria, which is the region just north of Judah, right before you get the Galilee region. So Archelaus ends up taking that and ruling over all that. And then Herod Antipas is going to take Galilee and Perea. And so this, the Galilee region is the region just north of Samaria and going into the Sea of Galilee region. 
Now, in Jesus' ministry, he spends the vast majority of his time in the Galilee region, which is under Herod um, Antipas, and then Samaria as well. He spends a little bit of time in Samaria, mostly just passing through to get from one region to the other. But the woman at the well is that Samaria region. And then he spends a considerable time in Judah because that's where Jerusalem is with the temple interactions and the festivals and that kind of stuff. So that kind of gives you an idea of what territories these are. So these are the three sons that end up taking the rule after his father's death. So there is no longer a sole single ruler over Israel anymore, Herod I, is now divided among his three sons. Herod Philip, who's mostly just called Philip, and Herod Archelaus, who's mostly just called Archelaus, and then Herod Antipas, who's mostly just called Herod. Herod Archelaus did not last very long. He only ruled for about 10 years, and largely because he was a psychopath. He was a true psychopath, like way more than anybody else. He was the kind of guy who really did not like the Jews. And the Pax Romana kind of Rome allowed you to put down any rebellion. The Rome didn't want you to disturb the peace, but if other people disturbed the peace, you were allowed to be as violent and as ruthless as you possibly wanted in order to put it down so that nobody ever would have the courage to rebel again. So Archelaus didn't like the Jews, so he kind of, what he did was he's like, well, I, I'm not allowed to put kill them just for the sake of killing them, but I want to kill them. So what I'll do is I'll do something that will anger them. I'll violate some ritual or I'll violate some law or I'll put a graven image somewhere and they'll get so angry that they'll rebel and I can just violently put them down and kill them a bunch of them. So he just kept doing that over and over again. Eventually Rome figured it out. Eventually they were like, wait a minute, this is happening a lot more under you than it ever did Herod the first. And, and then it's doing under Philip and under Herod Antipas. And then they begin to look into and they realize he's doing this on purpose. So they sacked him and got rid of him. 